Hello, hello. Welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum and a proud member of the Drum Click Podcast Network. You can find out more about both of these at bigfatsnaredrum.com or thedrumclick.com, as well as all the socials, yada, yada, yada. Okay, so this week's guest is Richard Crave the Spave Spaven. He's been one of the most requested names as of late, and it was quite the treat. Having played with Jose James, Flying Lotus, Gangstar, Cinematic Orchestra, James Zoo, and many more, his career as a sideman alone is enough to put him in the legend category, but it's his solo ventures that really showcase Richard's ability to be a drummer's drummer without being too drummy. These are, of course, all technical terms, but he respects both the craft and the audience at the same time. His ability to finagle through complex patterns while maintaining a conscious level of listenability is second to none. He's a proper English gentleman, and in this episode, he dissects the top five influences that made him into the drummer he is today. You can check out a playlist featuring all the songs either mentioned or played in this episode via the show notes. All right, cheers. So we had a, a big fat snare drum contest uh, that ended about a week and a half ago, and we ended up picking one of your students. I didn't realize this. It was it was Patrick Galligan, and uh, it was at PKG Drums online on Instagram, and it just shows how how much I inherently and subconsciously appreciate your influence on other people because his his style was so the way he. Uh, he arranged that drum part was really interesting um and i'm sure you had at least a small percentage on helping him be that creative person so it was really cool well thanks man yeah it was it's he's been great to work with like we do one-to-ones on my patreon and Mm. we just kind of we can tap into that sort of psychological side of drumming really easily you know i don't know um if you have this with students but you know the students that you can kind of get into that side of it you know you're not just talking about the what you know the Mm -hmm. specifics of what you're actually playing you can talk about the bigger picture and they're kind of my favorite lessons um so it's been great with Patrick he's also obsessed with uh drum and bass as well which makes me feel like he's come to the right teacher (laughs) yeah yeah but um no super receptive and well done to him you know well deserved um yeah his life is uh, probably will never be the same again he can't walk down the street anymore <laughs> the photo ops is crazy man you know well you know what he didn't get back to me right away and he there said it was because his 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 uh, instagram was blowing up that day so it's all piling up mate yeah he's patrick's changed he's changed <laughs> <laughs> so how do you i mean kind of to piggyback off that how do you as a teacher and this might be a very big question um, that people should maybe pay to hear the answer for on your Patreon. But how do you go about allowing a student to find their own voice? Because that's the hardest thing to do. Well, it it really it depends on the student. You know, they sort of need to be ready for it. And it it depends on the rapport that you have with that student as well. For me... Um, it's like there's definitely trust there's two-way trust when you're working with someone 
um, because you're communicating about really personal stuff. And I find the students where I can establish that trust and it will be students that I have respect for as people, um, I find that kind of allows us to get into all of that really interesting territory that makes lessons really interesting for me as well as them. You know what I mean? It's sort of like a, becomes more of a sort of joint discovery more than just a kind of, you know, some sort of generic drum lesson type effort, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, yeah, I, I can, that's sort of when I get passionate about teaching is when you get into the real sort of deep sort of psych- psychological side and, just yeah you know bigger picture music associated you know we're always talking about music um you know aligned with playing drums um and i feel like they're the sort of students that you know i work really well with yeah sometimes being vulnerable on the instrument is is more nerve-wracking than like a romantic relationship or those kind of things because it's (laughs) you're like i think this is cool i think this is rad and uh yeah, it's it's tough. So to have that special relationship with someone that their job is to tell you if you're going in the right direction or not is uh, is key. So yeah, and I, to be honest, I think if people come to you for lessons, you know, at this stage, like you're quite, you know, I, I think I'm quite a specialist kind of a drummer. Like if you come to me for lessons, it's because you you're looking for a certain type of thing, and um, it's. I feel like it's my duty to be completely honest. Sometimes mm. that's not easy as a teacher, but it's it's really like what I would be looking for if I was going to someone if I if I'd sought somebody out to have lessons from. It's like, please, I really want to know what you think. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I it may not um, be sort of like technical. You know, I tend not to jump on people's techniques immediately. Um, gradually over time when you get to know someone i think that's when you can make adjustments um but yeah it's um it's definitely saying saying it how it is you know i think opinions need to be aired in uh, in lesson time yeah and you were mostly self-taught right at the beginning uh in the beginning no i had a teacher Mm. which i think was really useful because that was at a time when i wasn't musically orientated i was so young that i just kind of respected my teacher and i just did what he said Mm. and when it was technical things i you know i'd have hour-long lessons when i was eight years old and half a half an hour of that would just be technique which i see a lot of teachers teaching kids these days who feel like they need to make the lesson more exciting you know whereas i was just kind of like Whatever my teacher says, Freddie Wells, his name was, I'm just going to shout him out, bless him. Um, whatever my teacher said, I would just I would just do, you know, just suck it up, basically, just get on with it. Mm-hmm. And then that, because he was a big band drummer, so that was my first sort of discipline. So I feel like I got the discipline out the way early on. And then when all the hip-hop records and all the genres to follow came in, I was sort of like coming from a disciplined background where I could take that in any direction Mm -hmm. so we do have a few questions from uh some of our instagram listeners and um 
The first one is, and I don't know what he means by this, so I hope that this doesn't fall flat, <laughs> but this is uh, Lucas Farron, and on Instagram, he's at L Farron, and he said, ask him about driving a tour bus in Wisconsin. <laughs> wow. I have no does, idea. <laughs> this is some inside information. How does he know about this? <laughs> I don't, that's the, all the information I was given. Lucas, I need to know how you know about this. And also, I had a disaster with um, some, like, Apple backup iPhoto nonsense where I lost the film of me driving this tour bus. Oh, my gosh. But, yeah, I was on I was on tour in the States. The European tour bus drivers, they're all way too sensible and responsible to let any of the band drive the bus. Mm-hmm. That luckily for me that wasn't the case in the states and um i kind of let it be known to the driver that i that i'd like to have a go you know and then it was just i think it was one one kind of late morning everyone was still in bed and he just called me up the front oh my and God. and uh yeah i ended up driving the bus basically it was uh it was an interesting tour yeah i'm not going into too many details but how on earth does Lucas know this? <laughs> that maybe Lucas was the driver. Do you remember the guy's name? It wasn't Lucas. This isn't Detective Lucas from the Wisconsin traffic department. You know what? It, it actually is. I'm looking at his profile <laughs> right now, and he actually is on the way to your house. Um, all right. Well, there there's you no, go. Well, Apple destroyed the evidence on my behalf, so there's no evidence. Oh, that that's in some server somewhere. Believe me. Yeah. Um, so you're you're screwed. Um, <laughs> all right. So the next question is from Fernando Javier Quadro, and he asks, and I'm quoting him, ask him how he did to get those dynamics. And so we've had a few people talk about or inquire about your ghost notes and your whole your overall theory on your approach to building the blocks of your grooves with those. It's definitely. It is a pertinent question. Thank you, Fernando, because it it is actually important to me. It's something that I'm sort of constantly aware of. And it's it comes more from a kind of awareness, sort of like you're you're live producing yourself. Do you know what I mean? Like you're constantly and I think this is actually a burden at times in my playing. It's like I'm so monitoring my output, you know, in terms of dynamics and stuff like that, that it kind of becomes this sort of fifth element of coordination or something at times you know it takes up quite a lot of cpu Mm. but i think as well because um i mean i know we're going to talk about electronic influences and stuff like that that also made me really aware of it like if you're playing a dubstep pattern or like a, a drum and bass groove or something i'm kind of thinking that the samplers and sequences where this has come from the the dynamics are very kind of measured and consistent so i basically brought that into my playing so i i'll teach a like a track of mine called side to side and i'll talk about like you know ghost notes are a one level and backbeats are another level and just be aware of that and try not to play anything in between and the the reason that i feel that's important is when you listen back to it a recording of that then it just gives you like a real kind of programmed sort of aesthetic to your playing which i just find translates really well onto records mm-hmm. how did you go about 
working on that? Is there a specific thing you do uh, more often than not that you feel has worked well for you? Um, no, not not in terms of like an exercise, but I mean, I've done, I have worked on just all sorts of ghosting and, you know, playing an accent directly after a ghost note and that type of thing. But like I say, the main thing is actually just sort of monitoring it all mm-hmm. the time and just making it something to be aware of. Like a, a lot of players will, without thinking about it, they'll, the velocity on the hi-hat will just, it will just go up and down. And I always say there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Sometimes that's the vibe, but it's just good to be aware and be deliberate about those things. And if that's what you want to do, then great. And if that's, if it's not, then you can just sort of lock off your, um, like your, it's like another level of coordination, just even out all your hi-hats and let that be the vibe, you know, but you're choosing what it is that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, you're actually a great host because this, what you just said about using the ghost notes in beats is, uh, instead of exercises, is very uh, pertinent to this groove that I'm going to play right now, which is a, a song from your past. There'll be two that I'm going to play and then we'll move on to your your choices. It's in six four. It's a, there's a there's something that happens with a lot of my music, which is people seem to think that it's more complicated than it is, mm-hmm. and then I'm just like snares on two and four, dude. Like that's <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. And they're like, no, but it, there's a it's twenty one eight there, and I'm like, <laughs> no, no, it's just a backbeat. So in this, the snare just goes on the two, the four, and the six okay. all the way through. Well, now, now I want to play it one more time. in real time right there how i wasn't <laughs> listening i wasn't listening to the turnaround of the guitar i was just listening to the drums like well i mean i can bob my head it goes like this so it must be four four uh well the kick that's... displaces halfway through so it, it gives the effect of something shifting in the time but actually it just you've got to just hold on to your one and actually sure. it's it's the back the snare never moves that's uh that track is vintage year right vintage year yep because it 
basically I wrote that tune with my guitarist Stuart McCallum and we both liked it so much that we both put it on our respective records Mm. so my version was called Vintage Year and then his version was called North Star so I recommend checking out North Star it's got the same pattern in it I think it's we did that second and I feel like North Star is a kind of more refined developed version of Vintage Year but Okay. So you might you might want to compare the two. So we we completely cross pollinated on that tune, and so it exi- you know we were like, why not? You sure. Know, who's gonna Who's gonna care? Why not? Let's, yeah. let's do it. I'm not gonna sue you. You're not gonna sue me. It's all good. Exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. So number two is. Uh, well, I'll just play it, and then we'll go from there. What have we got? <laughs> Yeah, so that's The Self off, uh, I mean, your record, The Self. And it's featuring, is it Jordan Reiki? Rakai. Rakai. I never pronounce names right. I need to just go with my second assumption, and that should be the case. So, yeah. Can you just just say my surname real quick, please? Spaven? Yeah, very good. Okay. (laughs) I've had had my moments with Spaven and all sorts, you know. So just just making sure. Yeah, yeah. I was... uh, I think I heard it was like the 80-20 drummer was doing it. I, I did some research and he has a phrase called Crave the Spave. And yeah. so now I think for anyone listening, it's Crave the Spave, Richard, Crave the Spave, Spaven. So. But yeah, so that beat, uh, the reason why I brought that up is because, and you alluded to this earlier, that you have a uncanny and insane ability to go in and out of complex patterns, but still have that listenability factor. And so... What are some non-negotiables for you when you're creating a drum part in order to achieve that? Well, it's, it's a great choice, firstly, just from what we were talking about with Vintage Year, because again, this is just backbeat. This is in 4-4 four, four, mm-hmm. and the backbeat's on the 2 and two and the 4. Um, I sat down and tried to explain it to Mike Johnston. One time we were on a drum festival together. And it was great because he was hearing it like a 16th displaced. Mm. And I was literally writing it out in a napkin and was like, so you see the snare's just on the good old two and the four, you know. But there is, I guess like I want to make, I just want to make soulful music. You know, I don't want to make over technical music that um, just kind of excludes people you know i want people just to be able to like oh man i'm feeling this tune mm-hmm. i'm not i'm not in it to to make technical you know smoke and mirrors kind of thing that's not my thing it's not what music is about for me so it does but it does sort of come from i don't know influences i suppose like this the self came about when i was i was deeply into dubstep like um, labels like Deep Medi, artists like Mala and um, don't know Hatcher, Vivek, 
you know, Khan, bunch of artists. And I was just like, it just really sort of opened up this sort of stuff you can do hi-hat patterns and all sort of around 140 BPM that sort of became my favorite tempo. And then it's just like, how are you going to work that into your playing? And it sort of became part of what I do. And then putting that onto record and sort of presenting that was just a natural progression. And then it's just finding that balance really of like, I feel like with top kit, you know, with hi-hat and with your high frequency top kit, you can get away with quite a bit as long as the groove is really rooted somewhere. Mm. Um, and that's the thing with the self, you know, I know, you know, some people hear it differently, but I think if you're not, if you're not someone who's looking for the complications, then you just hear that backbeat on the two and four and, and you're just, you can just rock to it. it. It's just fine. And you can, just get into the soulful side of it, you know, for those of us that hear these things, um, you know, maybe that's just a curse. Sometimes it's like, you just can't not hear these things. Mm -hmm. You kind of want to, if you dig under the surface a little bit, then there's quite a bit there for you in terms of like how you would go about playing this, even though you're sort of offering a two and four backbeat aesthetic as a result of all this hard work that you've done, you know? Yeah. So it's well, kind of like undercurrents. That's kind of what's going on. It's, it's choosing just tasteful grooves that have some sort of undercurrent level of complexity going on that you do to, that you do to the extent of not overcomplicating things or, or taking too much attention away from the, you know, the piece itself or, you know, it's just as important to me, all that stuff. Do you, when you're writing drum parts, do you rely, I mean, do you think clinically, uh, you know, limb by limb when you're crafting it in real time, or do you kind of rely on more of what you've referred to as the zone, just jamming out and then listening back and being like, okay, that's, that groove from this section is more of where I want this to go. Or is it a combination of both? Yeah. Total combination. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Of everything really. I just try and try and keep that really open um keep the approach open so that we don't get into some pre-formatted way of thinking you know of approaching everything mm -hmm. um also programming stuff that's been a thing it's like program something in real quick and then like let me just put this hi-hat pattern over the top and then you kind of work on the rest of the tune a bit and then you start to demoitis kicks in and you start mm. to really enjoy you know what's there and then you're like what if i try and play this on the kit and then that transferring something onto a kit can be a real challenge you know in terms of how how am i going to play this physically it just it's mm -hmm. not it's like nothing that i would ever play naturally and as soon as i get that feeling that makes me focus in on it like i want this to be the most natural thing you know because you feel like you're playing completely backwards mm. like your left side is leading or something and it's like man this is just so, feels so unnatural but I always just want to get those things and just just bury them into my playing and um you know I think the self is a good example of that yeah yeah, I'm not afraid of heights, but I am afraid of that feeling of when like your left hand's leading and like that uneasy where you're like you're kind of floating. Uh, yeah. very scary. Mm -hmm. 
Hey, y'all. I wanted to... (laughs) I can't say. I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co. It's an ocean patinaed 14 by 5.5 snare drum, and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three-position strainer, 42-strand wires. It's lovely. It's loud, and it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. And, and Preston, actually, this is why it's called the Ocean Patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember... Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was going to be or if it was going to be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his his you know where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum, and it was it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com, just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful, and he actually let me use it on an Eve 6 tour, and I didn't keep it, and I regretted it ever since then, just because I was trying to pinch pennies at the time, and I just kept thinking about it, and so the opportunity to get it again was presented, and it is one of my favorite drums. So the Ocean Patinaed 14 by 5.5 snare drum. Check it out. Reach out to me. Go to Vessel Drum Co., the Instagram's just at Vessel Drum Co. and check it out. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Sounds great. Bye. All right. So the first one is a specific groove that completely changed the way you think about drums. And I'm stoked you chose this. So yeah, it's the Amen Brother Break by uh, the Winstons. And that's yeah. GC Coleman on drums. And I'm going to start it at about 115, which is a few bars before the famous break. It gives me goosebumps that like I, I I play that to students sometimes and just you know it's just this like yeah it's a soul record all right big deal and then <laughs> it it you know because it kind of comes out of nowhere and if you like if you don't know it's coming and then and then there it is is like that moment that has changed music so many times like it's such a you know, I'm sure he's just like improvising that at the time. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's a great bit of drumming in a. If you just take the Aim and Break, just stand alone as part of the Aim and Brother track, yeah. it's a great bit of drumming. But then what that inspired is just like it's ridiculous, and it's still going. You know, we've got to say like not getting the respect that he deserved from that is is sad you know to have just you know this it's just like moment of genius just beautiful and uh yes yeah, a shame and so I, I i believe he has since passed on but did you ever get a yeah. chance to meet him no i didn't know no it would have been fun to have him on this podcast because that was very uh you know he was very ahead of his time 
Uh, all right, so we can go on to number two, and that is a, a performance which you either played or witnessed that altered your musical course. And you said Source Direct, mm-hmm. uh, Secret Liaisons. that the amen break that's the amen break yep we'll see there you go i mean like it's of course it, it has the vibe but i mean the way that's chopped up is so that's a that's a whole nother beat right exactly yeah and that that was kind of the the sort of changing course for me and this was this tune came at a time when i was just it was kind of the first drum and bass club that i'd been to and they used to play this record at the end every night Mm. Um, I think it was Fabio or Bookham, one of the DJs, he would put Secret Liaison on and then just put his coat on and like take the headphones off and just let the record just play out. That They would just end the night on that every time and it was just like classic tune of the time, you know. And for me, just because it, it had such a an effect on me, um, it just sort of hasn't dated that tune and I remember that moment and you know I still got a little little goosebumps you know right then just hearing it or that might be from the from the COVID jab yesterday I'm not quite sure (laughs) yeah yeah it's probably a mixture of both just like your songwriting but you know (laughs) but yeah it was just and that sort of started off a real you know real sort of passion for drum and bass and like I followed the scene, you know, and I bought records and I went to clubs and I just, I was so into it. And I I wasn't necessarily just going home and transcribing everything at that stage. I was just sort of young and just, just sort of being into the scene. And it's more like now when I look back on that and I sort of, I'm looking at the way that I play and I'm just like, man, that is just, it's just DNA to me, that stuff, you know? So, um, yeah that's that's why i chose that tune it's just um it was mars club in uh charing cross in london and that was my first sort of experience of hearing that stuff on a system real small little crowd little room it was just like amazing you know how was it to be a part of to be in london at the at the beginning of 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 drum and bass i mean how how exciting was that uh, it was extremely exciting. It was yeah. really exhilarating because, well, for all sorts of reasons, like no one these days can understand that there was a time when nobody knew what drum and bass was. <laughs> you know, if I play like, everyone's like, oh yeah, it's, you know, drum and bass, cool. <laughs> yeah. There was a time when no, there was no reference to that. We didn't know what it was. You know, I remember first hearing drum and bass on a, like a car commercial or something like that. And it's like, what? They're using our music on commercials now. What's going on? Sure. And at that time in London, it was just such a small scene. And when something is going off like that, it, you know, when it's so underground, I think that's when 
musically it's really peaking you know like when it's still sort of in its early stages and it's contained and that's what it felt like it was it was the heads you know the heads crowd who just knew about this new thing really small scene you know it really that was the seed and I don't know if we knew that 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 it was going to blow up like it did I think when something is at that stage, you don't really care. You're just so into it. You know it's just so good mm-hmm. that you just you just soak it up. You know, it's amazing. I'm curious with with everything being so digital now and 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 everything osmosising because you can just you know exactly what's happening on the other part of the world all the time. If there's going to be as many of those little isolated small scenes anymore, um, not to be from the perspective of like curmudgeon, but uh, I wonder if something like that would happen again, you know, or if, if there's things happening like that in person at clubs. I know. Yeah. I mean, take, you know, take COVID out of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, And there's, I don't know, but there's something to do with the fact that everything is available online, which means that things can be checked out in a, precursory kind of way mm-hmm. more easily whereas you know if i had to buy records i had to go to camden and buy the record you know and walk around with it you know and just like and go to the clubs and just for me personally that was a really important aspect to kind of live the scene sure ra- rather than just check it out you know you can't check out drum and bass on the internet totally you know what i mean yeah, and I, I I think about that sometimes. Um, most of the progression of me as an artist finding out who I am, what I want to say on the drums, are back before YouTube when I had to wait for my mom to buy me the new a you know insert whatever band record. And for two months, it was just like I knew every drum part from track one, two, three, four. You know, and now it's like it's a luxury because I, I I love the fact that if someone's listening to this podcast they have the ability to go into all these songs we're talking about if they want to which is great i'm not saying that's bad but yeah it's all it's it's superficial in a way and well you know i think just from my experience is like i'm sitting here talking you know you're asking me about like what tune changed your course you know and and that's why it's important for me because like to really like embed itself in your playing dna you need to commit to it in some way and like watching something on youtube is not a it's not a relationship it's not a commitment it's just a you know there's wow look at all this other choice that i have i'm distracted already you know even just checking this out you know Mm -hmm. you know yeah it's to make the conscious decision to stick with something for sure um yeah all right so number three and it's uh your favorite drummer and how their overall body work has affected you and in perfect you know professional fashion you actually chose a non-drummer which is a good a good decision and so you said you're picking a bass player well we were just talking about um just scenes and obsessing about music and stuff and um there was just some albums from so it's Michelle and Cello who were talking about bass player and like I just I just got so 
I just really bought into her music musical direction and the sort of production and the musicians she was playing with. And the the reason I chose her as my favorite drummer, she's not a drummer, but she introduced me to so many of my favorite drummers. You know, they just came through her band. Like mm-hmm. she was just great at selecting drummers. Like the first time that I saw Chris Dave um, was with her band at the Jazz Cafe in London. Mm. Um, it was around the, I think he's on the Comfort Woman album. Okay. Which I, I recommend that album for some like early, super tasteful Chris Dave's amazing. Um, and then there was the record after that. I can't remember the name of it. The one with would, Papillon. Would it be and, uh, the spirit music of Jemiah, Dance yes. of the Infidel? Yes. Uh, that's like heavily recommended. But her early records um, was that uh, there was Plantation Lullabies, which just really, really hit me that record. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of produced um, the drums, a sort of a mixture of production and live, I think. So you can't quite tell what's going on there all the time. I think it's Dave Gamson is the producer, I think. Um, and then Peace Beyond Passion was her second album and they both just just soulful just amazing bodies of work um another drummer she i think originally gene lake was involved i think and sean rickman maybe um and then chris dave and um uh dean tony parks as well is a you know so it's it's like for your favorite artist to then kind of be, you know, just have such great drummers going through her, her band was just like, man, that's, you know, I just followed her career and just kind of her music changed. And, you know, I just, I just went with it. Some like an artist, you just really trust, Mm. you know, even though they just, you know, it's not like, Oh, can't we have more of that same album? You know, it's just like, you're, I like to get on board with an artist like that and you're you're kind of in for the long haul, you know, you don't know what you're going to get. I love that, that you, an artist that you just trust. Yeah. So let me actually, you did reference uh, the Comfort Woman album and I believe this is uh, this Chris Dave on this and I'm just going to play Come Smoke My, My Herb or as you might say, Herb. time i play that to a to any student there the pen and paper is always out like what's that so you know it's like i'm sure i need to i need to get on that yeah god i mean the bass in that song too i mean the drums of course but uh yeah she's amazing um yeah if you're if you've if you're if you've got some time on your hands just put some michelle and cello records on and just actually just listen to what she's playing it's like so such engaged bass playing it's just ridiculous she's incredible yeah 
if you got the call to be the next one, would that be like this this thing you're like, respectfully, I'm going to say no, because this is just respect it from afar kind of vibe? I can't, I can't imagine, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's kind of beyond, it's kind of beyond that stage of like, that would be the dream call. It would sort of like psych me out and yeah. would, would be a bit too much now, I think. Well, I have her on the phone now. Um, <laughs> all right. So uh, go check out her, guys. Um, and then, yeah, number four would be a record that just hit you at the right time in your life and represents a big part of your artistry. And you said uh, Burial, Untrue. The track is Archangel. We might lose a few people here because this is kind of like, this is kind of post-dubstep programmed, scratchy, lo-fi, just... It's just so deep, this album. I love it. I absolutely love it. All right. Well, sorry, guys. sounds to anyone who's never heard any burial before but i tell you what i will say about that is is um like i've never had a problem in accepting electronic beats as just great you know or inspiring or whatever there's no divide for me in terms of oh yeah but it's not a real guy or something like that none of that so to me i hear that and it's just like oh man like just ideas you know Mm -hmm. just so just what a what a groove it's just like it's insane i absolutely love it so i mean where were you because that's that came out in 2007 yeah um where were you in your career creatively that that just hit you like why do you think that hit you so well at that point in your in your career um i don't know how attached career-wise it was i was probably playing like a lot of broken beat stuff at the time um Mm -hmm. and and a lot of hip-hop and um also just kind of you know there's you know being from london and being through that whole drum and bass kind of experience that i was talking about is you're 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 still kind of just got one ear open for the underground kind of thing so this this dubstep kind of scene that's coming about and you know just hearing fresh stuff underground stuff it was just sort of on that level that i received this as just like oh man this is it's kind of very soundtracky and moody which i i love that i try and you know I'd, I'd love to make a soundtrack i feel like my music kind of lends itself to that in a sense you know it's good put your headphones on and look out the plane window or the train or something, you know, you'll, you'll be mm-hmm. okay with my records, I think. But, um, yeah, burial was just kind of, I don't know, just beats and sounds and just that lo-fi sort of grittiness. And there's just some sort of like, 
like he doesn't write he doesn't program drums like on the grid which freaks me out he sort of chops stuff in a really in a really different kind of way and um that's just seems to just give him a, a totally different vibe you know which i just kind of just latched on to some of those ideas yeah is is he still producing music he is yeah he is okay he, he was kind of like a unidentified for a long time which was interesting he was just a, a shadow that wanted to make beats you know and now his his there was a big kind of who is burial kind of thing you know oh okay but he's he's out and he's out in the open now he's in plain mm. sight oh yikes <laughs> All right, yeah. so uh, yeah. the last one is the sound of a particular record that helped mold your tuning style. And you said uh, David Axelrod, and it's the song, or Song of Innocence, and uh, specifically the song Holy Thursday. Yeah. All right. You know what the drummer is on this? Earl Palmer. Oh, of course. Oh, it's so good, that dynamic change. Am, am I in the right place to just geek out and talk about bass drum sounds for a second? Absolutely, absolutely. Am I? It's it's okay. It's, it's, <laughs> Please do. It's safe zone for that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait just a second. Yeah, I think we're good. <laughs> so, like, so you're in the studio, right? And you're recording, and they're they're fiddling around with your bass drum, and then, um, you know, and that that uh, subwoofer speaker thing comes out and stuff, and then you go in and you listen in the control room and like every time you play the kick drum, like the whole, the air in the, in the room just shifts backwards and forwards. Like, so, so kick drums need to have all this sub frequency on them. That seems to be the kind of, you know, the thing these days, mm-hmm. but like, I feel like, cause I play an 18 inch kick all the time and it's, kind of because like all the samples you know this is Earl Palmer playing like before hip-hop was invented I think in fact what date is this album 74 something like that 68 actually 68 well they right so hip-hop's not so hip-hop's not invented but he's just to me he's just playing hip-hop and of course this has been sampled by I mean Madlib famously sampled this track and um so me being into hip hop and listening to those records is just sort of like I'm into that sound, you know. I mean, if you listen to the kick sound on that track, it's just a lovely expressive kick sound that that isn't messing with the bass frequencies. It leaves a bit of headroom or you know lower bit of space in the lower register for the bass, and I just I love that separation mm-hmm. instead of like sub bass and the kick all kind of you know it's not so much the thing that i'm after for sound wise Mm -hmm. and just um 
So I'm trying to sort of sound like the samples sounded that got used on in a lot of hip hop and stuff. And a lot of that will be higher pitch kicks because the samples came from an era when drummers played smaller, higher pitch bass drums. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good example that El Palmer's just like, I mean, it just sounds like a hip hop sample, you know? Sure. I don't, well, I just don't think we should be just accepting that without, again, without questioning it and being, you know, what are we trying to get here? Like, let's not have that as our default. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bugs me. Bugs me a bit, that one. <laughs> uh, well, Richard Spavin, um, we've had a good time. Uh, yeah, that's, I know you, you're, uh, you just took your stuff out of the oven, so I wanted to make sure that I don't let you have cold food for dinner. But um, thank you so much for being on the show, man. This was, this was awesome. We've had a lot of requests for you, by the way. So this is probably recently one of the most requested guests. Um, well, well, I appreciate that. Yeah. Do you want to do a quick... Um, or not quick, you can go as long as you want, but is there any specific records that you were working on during COVID? Um, any, is there any live stuff that you do have planned out that you might want to talk about? Well, uh, no, I'm glad to say that there's, that I've got some live shows coming up, like with my band, because I've missed my band so much, you mm. know, over lockdown. Um, so we've, we've got a date at Jazz Cafe 25th of June in London. Um, then I've got shows with Jose James coming up as well which would be lovely to get back on the road with him. Um, been working on a lot of records over lockdown. Um, I'm a bit of a workaholic, really, mm. hence the Patreon as well. I just couldn't, you know, I was like, well, it's a project. Let's let's jump on it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's like 44th Move record coming up. Um, I did some stuff with Alpha Miss with his label. Um, and I've got my own... Uh, record coming as well there's two new records scheduled which i'm very excited about you know all that stuff that we were talking about in terms of undercurrents and kind of gone into some micro timing details that um awesome we we might be able to spend a another podcast dissecting those um when it comes out let's do it man i'd love to I'm, have you back on i'm quite excited about these because again i think they really have that thing of like okay cool yeah he's just playing hip-hop but then as drummers we're like but, <laughs> but wait a minute you know what i mean yeah. it's just that you know i'll be but right with just, you i'm listening yeah <laughs> yeah that's just taking that sort of you know the whole ordilla thing and this sort of um just micro timing thing just you know onto another level and just kind of like or just burying it in your playing again you know it's just mm-hmm. get, just getting these things entrenched well i think that's a great place to end it and uh i will let you go but again this has been i mean it's been a huge privilege talking to you so thanks again for taking the time thank you ben i appreciate it man it's um like i say the questions have been really interesting and it's been really good just really involved questions and you know you've got me uh kind of thinking passionately about all the stuff that's been important to me so you know appreciate that sort of an interview thank you and that's the show be sure to subscribe and if you're listening on a platform that allows for ratings or reviews do that it helps more people find the show which means the show will get better and bigger and hopefully i'll have a chance to sell out one day but you'd be an og listener that could brag to all your friends 
Um, anyways, also, why don't you go ahead and check out bigfatsnaredrum.com and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and all the socials. Just search for at bigfatsnaredrum and you will find it. This show is edited in part using Isotope RX-8 Audio Editor. It's amazing. So go check that out at isotope.com. Bye.